Good evening. I am Professor Lloyd Ambrosius in UNL's uh, Department of History. Uh, it is my pleasure as chair of the program committee of the uh, Ian Thompson Forum on World Issues uh, to welcome you uh, to this evening's lecture. Uh, founded by Ian Jack Thompson and later named in his honor, uh, the forum is designed uh, to engage both the University of Nebraska community and the general public uh, in important issues that affect all of us uh, in the contemporary world. We are grateful uh, to the Thompson family and Cooper Foundation for their generous support of this lecture series. We appreciate uh, co-sponsorship of tonight's uh, lecture by the College of Education and Human Sciences. We also thank the LEAD Center, Nebraska Educational Telecommunications, and the University Bookstore uh, for their support. Lectures are available live on Lincoln Time Warner Cable Digital Channel 80 and Analog Channel 99, UNL Campus Channel 8, and UNL's KRNU Radio 90.3 FM. This evening's lecture, Catching Up or Leading the Way, American Education in the Age of Globalization, is by Young Zhao. He is an internationally recognized scholar on the impacts of globalization and technology on education. He currently serves as presidential chair and associate dean for global education at the University of Oregon, where he is also a Weinman professor of technology and a professor in the Department of Educational Measurement, Policy, and Leadership. Professor Zhao is the author of more than 20 books, including Catching Up or Leading the Way, American Education in the Age of Globalization, and World-Class Learners, Educating Creative and Entrepreneurial Students. He is a winner of the Early Career Award from the American Educational Research Association. After his lecture uh, this evening, uh, you will have the opportunity to ask questions of our speaker by writing them on cards provided uh, by the ushers. Now join me in welcoming Young Zhao to Nebraska. Good evening. It's, uh, it's great to be in Nebraska. It's a state you can't really avoid you know, when you want to cross the country. So uh, it's, it's really beautiful to be here. Uh, I, I lived in Midwest for a while, and now I live in Oregon. So again, this is a, a must-go-through place. But uh, thank you for having me here in Lincoln. And uh, the, tonight, I'm going to really try to share some of my observations with you about uh, major educational issues. And so it's really st started from my own personal experience with this, with this book was uh, several years ago uh, when I was uh, running different organizational, organized different conferences, I discovered a very interesting phenomenon. That is, uh, China was uh, reforming its education to be more like America, and America was reforming its education to be more like China. So that was very interesting, that kind of paradox, and uh, I think all both countries want to end up in Hawaii, and that's the <laughs> paradise of education. And so that's, uh, I, I wrote this book several years ago, and then in recent, actually, I was uh, finished another book. Uh, it really has 
directly deals with China, which is, uh, uh, has to do with uh, what's going on in China, what's happening there. And uh, uh, last year, I finished a, a different book about really uh, where education should be headed. So tonight, I'm going to really combine my observations of three books and to talk to you about what I think education needs to go, where do we need to go, and what happens. So first of all, let's start with uh, a very tough question for you to think about, a question that has to do with uh, uh, American education reforms. You know, America has been doing a lot of reforms over the last uh, two to three decades, led by national level. We have changed the nation's education landscape in the U.S. from no child left behind to George, and that's George Bush, if you remember him still, I don't know, uh, but uh, uh, there, to Obama's race to the top. You know, you, you, you realize this, this idea about uh, the, the issue with both uh, major national initiatives is the question about where we want to go. You know, when No Child Left Behind was started, I still, I mean, I'm still working on something like No Child Left Behind in what? Sometimes you want your children to be left behind, you know. In some places are nice than going there. And with Obama's initiative, the idea of a race to the top is completely against my Chinese Taoist belief. You know, you never want to go to the top too fast. Because once you get to the top, the only place you can go is going down. That's, that's not very nice. And uh, if I were Obama, I would say crawl to the top and take another 50 years. Uh, however, actually in this country, uh, I observe the Republicans and uh, um, Democrats agree on one issue, how to destroy our public education. So that's basically that's how we, and uh, if you think about that, it's, uh, I'm always imagining Obama secretly working together with George Bush. And so Obama said that George says nobody less, no child is left behind. Uh, Obama says let's reach to the top and push them off the cliff. Mission accomplished, that's what I call. Now, uh, the, the question, this major education change has actually to do with uh, a bigger concern of Americans losing its competitive edge in the age of globalization. We're seeing other countries you know, surpassing us. You know, Obama keeps talking about we have to out-educate other countries, out-compete other countries. So you hear this every day. People talking about how American education is getting worse, is in decline. So I want to start with the first question, major question for you to think about is that the idea that what makes a great education and is American education truly, truly changing a lot? So the big question we, we know in the, in the U.S. is this one. I want to ask, ponder this question. Why is America still here? I mean, this is not only a Canadian question. It's something the Canadians want to know, but uh, it's an American question. It's that, uh, why are we still here? And as I said, we think, we are told each day, American education is in decline, is getting worse. But historical data would show that American education is not in decline, is not getting worse. It has always been bad. It has been bad for a long time. For those of you who remember, 1958, that's the year after 1957. That's why it's important. Uh, 1957 was important because that's the year the first man-made satellite, Sputnik, was uh, launched by the Soviet Union. And the Life magazine 
had a special cover story showing how much worse American education was compared to that in the Soviet Union with two students on the cover. One is students, American student from Chicago. One is Alexei from Moscow. I don't have to tell you which one is American, which one is a, a Russian, and because the American students is smiling too much. <laughs> By the way, according to the article, American education uh, that makes Steve, uh, Stephen happy is the one that's going to doom America's future because we do not, or we did not have rigorous curriculum, high expectations, and Stephen was playing too much with his girlfriends. That was the idea. And Alex in Moscow had a much rigorous curriculum, focused on science, does only high class you know, games like chess. And that was actually a very interesting time to observe this. Of course, this then changed. In the end, uh, Russia, I mean, Soviet Union doesn't exist. And uh, I think Alex moved to the U.S. and Stephen became an engineer afterwards, no, as many years. So, so it's an interesting story. But that's not, that's just one time. In terms of our measurement, test scores, in 1964, the first international mathematics study showed Americans' 12th graders ranked 12th out of 12 countries. So that's pretty bad. If you do math, right? It's, uh, and we are basically at the bottom. And that's 12 countries out of the Western democratic countries. If you remember the time, that's the Cold War. So the other countries did not participate. Then after that, we had SIMS, second international mathematics study. Then we had TIMS, third international mathematics science study, or now we call trends in international mathematics science study. All of the studies show that America never had a good old day in education measured by test scores. So we've had bad education for over half a century. You think if education mattered, if test scores measured quality of education, America should not be here. That's why I raised the question that America, why is America still here? America is not only still here, according to President Obama, in his State of Union address in 2011, America still has the largest, most prosperous economy in the world, which, by the way, actually is true. It is factual, at least more factual than some of his other facts. <laughs> so how do you explain this? Interesting to think about. So that's the biggest question I want you to ponder about, what measures as good education. And recently, of course, China has risen to be the star of education. So the second question I raise is that, why didn't China have a big party? And this is not the Communist Party, which is actually quite large, and this is a, a celebration party that is to celebrate China's achievement. You know how eager the Chinese Communist Party is to uh, celebrate any international achievement? But not in this one. This was the result of the release data of PISA in 2009. For the first time, China participated in any major international studies for the mainland students. PISA is the assessment of 15-year-olds. It's run by OECD, and it's the largest international academic horse race. So it's a test 15-year-olds, three subjects run by every three years. China, for the first time, students from Shanghai participated. And as you can see, these are the top 10 countries. Students from Shanghai took number one in every category. And China repeated the same success uh, last year, 
still number one in all categories. And there's a top 10. By the way, if you want to look for the US, your screen is too small. I cannot put it there. It's a, you can't find it. So this is supposed to be a major achievement. And indeed, many outside observers think this is a big achievement. They think China has done everything right in education. The great writer, Thomas Friedman, uh, remember word of class, and the word is flat, talked on NBC and said, I wish we could be China for a day. That was Thomas Friedman's admiration. And in education, uh, we have um, Secretary of Education, Arnie Duncan, called this a wake-up call, a uh, major wake-up call in his press release. And uh, by the way, Arnie Duncan has uh, received many wake-up calls, but he refuses to wake up. That's the problem. Is that, uh, now, the, now you, you name, uh, President Obama called this a Sputnik moment. That is to indicate how serious this is. And then you have a group of uh, uh, researchers uh, led by Mark Tucker, the national president of, and CEO of the National Center for Education and the Economy, put together a book that was published by Harvard Ed uh, Education Press called Surpassing Shanghai. That's the American's agenda for education reform. So Shanghai become the American's national goal. Which, by the way, this book really annoyed me a lot you know, when, that, when it first came out because I thought I moved to the wrong country. If I stayed in China, I would have been default number one. You know, I was, uh, but more, more annoying to me when I examine the history of American education is that we have been driven by this inferiority complex since 1980s. 1983, a nation at risk. Should American education is behind others, at that time Korea and Japan. And this time we want to surpass Shanghai, which makes American education goals get smaller and smaller and smaller. It's, uh, I actually blame this on, on President Bush. And President Bush in No Child Left Behind, did you guys notice that a major goal of No Child Left Behind with massive reform was to make sure every third grader can read. For the most developed country on earth, making reading Illiteracy, a national goal, is just silly. It's just, you were not sub-Saharan countries, that's a 200 years ago. I think this is President Bush mistaking his personal goal as a national goal. That was the problem. That's the, that's, that's the, uh, it's the, that's the challenge. That's the, but, you know, we, we get all this silly goal lowering our expectations. Think about this. Uh, it's uh, uh, not only us, by the way. Uh, the Australians began to admire Asian countries. They're talking about the Grattan Institute out of University of Melbourne put together a major summit, which actually I was invited there to moderate to say, we got to learn from East Asian countries, Shanghai, Singapore, Korea, and Hong Kong. And because students from Shanghai are two years ahead in math, by, you know, by the time they reach 15 years, that's a lot, if you think about it. This looks like interesting data. They all want to learn from Shanghai. By the way, there's another, uh, in America, Shanghai or China has become the new Soviet Union or the new Japan to drive reforms. There's a governor called Ed Randell out of Pennsylvania. I don't know if you're in Nebraska, you notice there is a state called Pennsylvania on the other side. And uh, they have a governor, two-term governor, Ed Randell, was really funny. And... Uh, uh, one year, just shortly after the release of the data, there was a, a, a game 
that was football game was canceled, I think it was the Philadelphia Eagles due to snowstorm. And you think football game, China, they had nothing to do with each other. But somehow the governor got something together. He went on public radio and chastised all the Philadelphians, Pennsylvanians, and NFL organizers. This is what he said. He said, we've become a nation of Uzis. The Chinese are kicking our butt in everything. If this was in China, do you think the Chinese would have caught off the game? People would have been marching down to the stadium, and they would have walked, and they would have been doing calculus on their way down. <laughs> By the way, I don't that that doesn't happen. First off, the Chinese would not even go to the game, and they would be doing calculus in their dorm. So that's a, and in England, in England, it's another thing. England Secretary of Education Michael Gove, of the new government, went to China to learn how China got so good. And he went home and wrote in a telegraph, said, I am happy to confess, I'd like us to implement a cultural revolution just like the one they've had in China. We need some history lesson for him. But uh, uh, like Chairman Mao, we've embarked on a long march to reform our education system. And you know that England, uh, their Minister of Education just went to China, and they are importing 60 Chinese math teachers to help solve England's math problems. So everybody loved China's education achievement and celebrated on Chinese behalf, except the Chinese. I was there, I was there when the data was released, and the Chinese government, the Chinese massively observers, most people did not celebrate because as the previous Premier of China, Wen Jiabao, said, we need Steve Jobs, not test takers. And that actually prompts many discussion about this. And uh, so Chinese people began to ask, how come a nation of 1.3 billion people, four times the size of US population, by even random distribution, China should have four times the number of baby Steve Jobs born? What happened to the Baby Steve Jobs. That's a question, to, interesting to ponder, right? To think of, and then another question is Kai Fu Lee, who was uh, actually an executive at Microsoft, Apple, then led the Google in China. Then he got out of the position, run one of the first venture capitalists to stimulate, uh, venture capital firms to stimulate IT innovation in China. He himself was immigrant from Taiwan, went to school at, uh, in Tennessee, and then got his degree from, I think, Columbia and Carnegie Mellon. And he knows both systems very well. He said in a very public forum something very controversial. He said, uh, the next Google and Apple will emerge for sure but probably not in China, probably not even in Asia, unless they abandon or abolish their education system. So the, the same thing would happen is that in China, for example, China basically recently you've seen a rise in the number of patents, filings, applications, rise of publications all over the world. You think their capacity is high, but high quality patents still do not exist. True major disruptive innovation patterns don't exist. So the data would show that China was 20% of the world's population, 9%, actually now it's about 13% now, of world's G, uh, GDP, and 12% of the R&D expenditure, only 1% of patent finance granted by leading offices out of China, not within China. And that's 
a very sad statement. So this, you have it. The U.S., despite its 60 years of education, poor quality, and still remains here. And China, despite of this major achievement, is having trouble with the creativity. So how do we explain any of this? Well, it has to do with what we mean by education. It is, what, what, does, what do you mean by education? So I have come up with this idea about talking about educational side effects. The side effects that explains that when you achieve something, you will lose something. So this, let me just present this model. So we have this model called uh, a paradigm of education. This is the traditional education paradigm we have been following every place, in the U.S. and other places. So it is uh, what I call a sausage-making model. Because if you, if you imagine all your schools, universities do the same thing, right? We describe the outcomes. We try to make a guess what works in the future, what will make you employable, what will make you valuable. That's what we call the core curriculum. We describe that, then we make school. All schooling is about making sure children acquire those things. Then we use assessment, we test those things. So the end results is how well students have mastered what have been prescribed. And also in the same process, since it's a sausage maker, we do not want people who do not want to become sausages. Remember, it's, it's, a, it's a homogenization machine. It's, it's, that's, that's right. And so we call individual differences, diversity, they're all problems for schools. Remember your school, your students, if they're different, we say they're not ready for kindergarten. Remember those things? It's that, so we try to do those things. It's like in Nebraska, you know this. You know, different cuts of meat are pretty good, you know, in their own rights. So a rabbi steak is good to be a rabbi steak. But what if you get some crazy people say, we only want sausages? We want well, kind of grind it. Just grind the rabbi into sausages. That's what we do. We take all the people. You know, you may be great. Music, art, thinking, but we don't like you. So this model has been practiced for a long, long time. Uh, it works fine. It works on the condition that, number one, we know pretty sure what skills, what knowledge we will need in the future. That's what we call the curriculum. And America has always had trouble with this. We think about Asian countries have high test scores because they have a narrow, deep, focused curriculum. That's why in this country we're trying to copy that. We'll have a national curriculum through something called the Common Core. Uh, state standards. Uh, by the way, congratulations for not adopting that in Nebraska. And uh, the Common Core basically prescribes what we think will be valuable. It's a national bet. We are betting on behalf of millions of children that if you acquire this, you will be ready for college and career. And that's why we admire those countries who can do it. We have that then. The more successful you are at homogenizing people, through a national standardized curriculum, through national, nationalized high-stakes testing, you will have better test results. That's no question about this thing. So you are better to homogenize the, the, those, that process. And this was almost necessary for an old, old society. The old society where, you know, a closed economy, you can predict, you can predict what you need, 
But also in the old society, we did not have a lot of need for great talents. Because most people worked on jobs created by a few great people. You know, when I lived in Michigan, I know you were going to work for Henry Ford or General Motors. Those few great people created millions of jobs that require similar skills and knowledge. And those great people typically were not products of our education system. So in a traditional society, great people with different talents are not very useful unless they can create this massive number of jobs. I can tell you, I, I was born in a village in China. I grew up, I grew up there as well, uh, you know, in Sichuan province, uh, all farmers and peasants and all those things. Uh, I can tell you in my village that uh, Lady Gaga would be useless. And so would Steve Jobs, actually, for that, for that matter. I mean, all of those things. So that's what we were preparing. <laughs> and the challenge is this. And when the more successful you are at homogenized people, the less likely they're going to create something. The less likely they're going to become entrepreneurial. That, that's very, very, very interesting. And so American education has been what I call a broken sausage maker that made some bacon. And it is those bacon that saved America for a long time. China is the perfect sausage maker. The problem is when societies change, when societies change, we need different people. American average lose one million jobs a year because of, because of close down of companies. And, but luckily, we have people to help us make all those transitions. Over the last 60 years, you know, we've done a lot of transition. And today, however, we face a big challenge. Americans' traditional education strength, you know, we are very diverse. We allow public funding and public provision. That's key. We do not select people based on their test scores into our 12 years of education. We do not select based on their, their race. They all had a chance to do this. And that means we, are not in, we, we do not run a country club system. We did not test you, make you like me. So everybody had a chance in the system that preserved some of our great, great uh, bacon. That's like Steve Jobs. You can drop out. You know, one of the things I want Americans to be better than most other education system is our students' talent shows. Have you seen those talent shows? It's amazing. Some of them you can barely call talent, but they get a show. You know, just it's, you get to see that. That's why we celebrate diversity. We allow everyone the same chance. The second thing America has a chance to do is this open and forgiving system. America has one of the most forgiving education systems, which looks really snobby. You know, you know, on the outside, because we allow, if you failed kindergarten, you can go to first grade. If you failed fifth grade, you can go to sixth grade. If you failed high school, you get a GED. We got something for you, everybody, right? So that, that's, you go out there, and that really is beautiful. Because in many ways, you know, if you fail a child at kindergarten, you drop the creativity, you drop confidence. And I'm sure many of you still did things that you haven't told your parents yet. Allow people to forgive. Youthful transgressions allow you to explore possibilities. It's very important. It's like uh, my, my son's first grade teacher, Mrs. March Lippi, uh, Michigan, told me once, said that uh, I really believe children like popcorn. You know, Nebraska, you should understand this one. It's about popcorn. I said, uh, how so? 
She said, well, some pop early and some pop late. And eventually, they were all pop. I said, yeah, but, you know, there are a few who get burned. But, you know, other than those, it's a... a <laughs> but other than those, you know, we'll be fine. But that is allowing people to develop in their own way. It's very important when you tie this. And now, of course, another uh, uh, major thing is uh, talk about local control, decentralized. America, another one, the beauty of America as a government, we do not have a national system. We, have, we do not have one national government. We don't even have one local government. We have many, many governments. In one time, we got over 200,000 school districts. They're independent governments. Now we have about 13,000 school districts. They are their own government. Unfortunately, remember, we, in order to become the best sausage maker, we're imposing national curriculum. We have basically taken away all the local decision-making power in curriculum, assessment, teachers, and autonomy from teachers to centralize. Most local school districts in this country now has become a federal government branch, implementing what Washington wants, what other state wants. And those local decision-making is very powerful because when you have 14,000 school districts, even half of them fail, you get another half successful. If you had one system, if your bet is wrong, Everybody fails. So the, and the beauty of this country is this decentralized local government control. Again, we're losing all of those. So, so these are the traditional virtues that created Americans' accident. But by definition, they make America as a horrible country to homogenize. We have too many different opinions, too many curriculum, and too many views. That's the beauty of this system. And now we're trying to close that. But I have to say, America so far has been fortunate because the creativity and the entrepreneurs who have been create the company to help America survive all the ups and downs over the past half century, and has, is, we're losing a lot of those things. And those things have been accidental, by the way, is that by design, we are not there yet. So I have come to the decision that America does not teach creativity any better than China or other Asian countries, we do not, symphony, we do not kill it as successfully as those guys. We have failed to kill them, but not by design, we have not cultivated them. But the problem is we have facing big challenges today. Well, technology always redefines the value of talents. Today, we are facing some very serious challenges in our education. So we have to be systematic and thinking about what's next. So let me show you some of the problems. One of the problems is that our education has, in general, failed our students. In the US now, got up over half of recent college graduates are jobless or underemployed. You know, with all the data, with today's race to the top, with the Common Core talking about college and career readiness. You can be ready for college, but unless we change, we're going to have a trouble. So for me, because I have two children, I have a, a daughter, and I have a son, I always I'm always concerned about something else. Not about college readiness, this is by the way my daughter, if you want to say that, it's a, and uh, I'm always concerned about this thing, uh, because my, you know, they, if you are simply ready for college, like my son was, he was so ready that he was able to get into one of the most expensive universities in the country, but he was not so ready, he did not get any money for it, so I got to pay, 
as many people you know as middle class in America, you never want to be in the middle. Okay, it's that's the in in, in as middle class. I, I was telling some people that, that this afternoon that uh, I'm a professor. I make enough money uh, not to qualify for any financial assistance for his uh, tuition, but uh, I do not make uh, enough that I don't care about the money he pays. And uh, so it was a horrible situation. So he graduated and he majored uh, uh, in, in art. You know, it's uh, it's very non-Chinese, but he did. And so. So one of the things is that it's not about college readiness. For him, I, my criteria of his education was that, can you stay out of my basement? <laughs> so I call this, we, education has to make children out of the basement ready. That means to be independent, financially independent, psychologically independent, and socially independent. So, but our education so far has failed in recent years that we have so many college students in their parents' basement. And on average, they have a college debt of $23,000. And this is a global phenomenon. It's not American phenomenon. It's we have Korea problem. China's graduating over 7 million college students this year. 7 million college students this year. European countries, we have even bigger problems. You know, the youth unemployment in Europe has caused a lot of dis, uh, uh, unstable situations. And this is not because of the financial crisis. That's true, yeah, that's many years ago now, 2008. European countries actually had worse unemployment situation for youth in 2012 than in 2008. And today, you know, the stock market is actually going up in the US, the companies are investing more, and we're not growing jobs in this country. Why is that? Then we have another problem, that is a lot of our children today, even when they have a job, they work on jobs that do not require a college graduation. You know, that's why we should be proud or we should be sad. In the U.S. today, we have a generation of best educated bartenders. Really, I mean, if you, you try it, I was uh, working somewhere actually there. The cocktails taste better when it's prepared by chemistry majors. It's, uh, and uh, so the... Uh, sad, sad, right? Right in uh, Walmart, Starbucks, a lot of them. But at the same time, we have a major paradox to, to deal with. That is, uh, we have a global talent shortage. Companies around the globe cannot find enough talents to work for them. So this is the thing. Unemployed college graduates, overqualified on jobs, and at the same time, we have companies not finding the right talents. What is wrong with this picture? Well, the society has just changed. We want bacons and other things other than sausages. Technology has always redefined the value of talents. Human beings have all kinds of knowledge. We always ask the question, what knowledge, what talent is of major, is of value? It's worth teaching. In 1860s, uh, there was a British philosopher called Herbert Spencer who wrote one of the most influential essays in education titled, What Knowledge is of Most Worth? That time was to redefine the value of school curriculum. Because at that time, most schools were teaching Latin and Greek. So if we did common core at that time, that would be Latin and Greek. And his argument says that that's not important anymore. We live in an industrial society. Science, technology will be important. 
That's the beginning of our modern curriculum, teaching modern sciences. That's 150 years ago. That's 150. Today, we live in a different society. So what kind of situation are we now in? Well, we're in a very bad situation. The bad situation starts with uh, uh, what um, Obama's State of Union address talked about. That is the disappearance of the middle class in the U.S. You see, in the last 30 years, the middle income bracket has dropped from some 60% to 40%. Then we see the growth of, we have a bipolar growth. The top income and bottom income is growing. America's bedrock, the middle class, is disappearing. The economy is hollowing out. What happened? And what has changed? Well, something very simple. Something you can look over the last 200 years. The change of jobs in proportion. What's growing, what's not. The green line shows something very simple. 200 years ago, we got a massive in the middle class. Most people worked in farming, fishing, forestry. Then that's replaced by manufacturing and other kind of workers. And then starting in the 1970s, we began to lose those jobs. To whom? Uh, what happened? Well, the first thing that happened to most of us to think about is automation. We used to have a lot of people making middle-class in income on this, and today, it's gone. It happens. Millions of jobs replaced. And not only manufacturing, because of computer chips, are replacing our cognitive abilities. Now, when I first came to this country, we had a lot of H&R block accountants doing taxes in shopping malls. Do you see them anymore? They've been replaced by TurboTax. They're banking tailor, bank tailors. And look at uh, lawyers. This is actually my fun fact is that uh, America has a surplus of lawyers. This is uh, shocking to many people. We are still suing each other as much as possible, but uh, we don't need as many lawyers. Uh, why? Search engines. You don't need so many people to do legal cases, to review these books. You can find them it, uh, on your fingertip. That's massive change. We also see another thing about results of globalization since 1970s because transportation costs much less than we can send jobs to other places. And the first groups of jobs were shoemaking, or t-shirts, textile to other countries. Now we're outsourcing other so-called high-end jobs. Computer programming, financing, customer services, all those things. So we are seeing a major shift almost, we're going to see more jobs taken away. In the future, if a job can be, can be analyzed into steps, it will be automated or sent out overseas. So by the way, here, here are some of the jobs that may be replaced or may not be replaced. So high skills, non-substitutable jobs as nursing, teaching, office work. So you can, if, you are, if you're a teacher, you have a job forever. Well, not if people began to import teachers from China. That's going to replace you. And uh, now, all of this has created interesting situation. That is, we see two classes rising. The creative class and the service class. People in the creative sector are the high-income people. They're growing fast, and we're seeing the service sector is growing fast. They're low-income people. 
So that's our challenge. We have no traditional middle-class jobs anymore. And those creative people who used to create a lot of jobs don't create jobs anymore. Like Mark Zuckerberg, Facebook, for example, that's three times the size of General Motors. It hires very few people, 6,000 people. Apple computers, the most expensive, I mean, most, uh, uh, the wealthiest company in the world, hire about 43,000 workers in the U.S. They don't. They're not Henry Ford anymore. They do not create jobs. So the traditional, we wanted to create jobs to become employees, to be hired by those people. They don't exist anymore. So now we need to figure out who is the new middle class. Schools have to focus on creating new middle class. And the new middle class is actually, you can see this then, has to be the creative class. Creativity used to be reserved for a few people. Today, creativity has become Necessity. Creativity is job security. Americans just had to happen to have a few by accident, but we need everybody to be creative. But schools have not been used to creating, to cultivating creative people. Schools, actually, by definition, when I was showing the sausage making, is we actually try to kill creativity. Creativity as a concept was not even talked about until after the 1920s. But this is Google Books. Number of mentions of creativity in all the Google Books. And the writings about creativity began to rise after the 1980s when we realized that everybody has to become creative. We call today in the US, is not information economy, it's a creativity economy. If you can create something, new ideas have to pop up. Schools were designed in the old paradigm to stifle creativity because we don't like kids like this. <laughs> remember we call them not school ready. You know, remember those, those guys, you know, not kindergarten ready. They do not follow. And that's why in most of the time, children are born creative. At age five, age five, 98% of our children are creative at the genius level. 98%. By the time, they finish five years of elementary school and kindergarten. We've successfully got rid of 60% of them. Age 10, our children, about 32% are creative at the same level. By the time they finish middle school, age 15, 10% are left. Remember, we have the fourth grade slump. Everybody reaches that. Around fourth grade, when schools become serious, become more formal, Children have the slump in creativity. And, and actually now it's getting worse. I'm sure with the Obama's kindergarten testing, with the, a lot of assessment in starting kindergarten, we will lose even more of that. That's why we have this uh, big alliance talk about the, the idea of uh, crisis in creativity, which has been documented by a lot of people in recent years, you know, that there was a major shift of our thinking and so now, by the way, I want to show you this. You get a chance. Your creativity can come back after retirement. <laughs> George Bush is painting now. Just think about that. It's, no. So how do we reverse this trend? Because all schools were designed to make sausages. We need to change that. The second part is that we live in a new age too. In this new age, Another element of, new, of the new middle class are those people who were traditionally useless. 
Traditionally useless people have become useful, like Kim Kardashian. <laughs> you may not agree, you know, but Kardashian is out of her parents' basement. <laughs> I, I use Kardashian as an example, very, very simple, because to show you that uh, we now live in a society. We consume different products and services. In the 21st century in the U.S. now, we have entered an age called the age of abundance. In the age of abundance versus the age of necessity, we consume different products and services. The age of necessity, we consume things that are necessary for survival. 100 years ago, we spent most of our income on necessities, housing, food, and shelter. Today, we spend less than half of our income on those things, we spend the rest on useless stuff. What are those called useless, unnecessary? Choice. 21st century, century, we consume choices. And when I first came to this country, out of a village of necessity, I came to the US, I could not buy shampoo to wash my hair because I did not know what kind of hair I had. <laughs> I got to find the right thing, you know, the right but those choices are necessary. In the U.S., if you have no choice, you are very unhappy. Do you know that? that is, is that choice necessary? How many flavors of potato chips we had? Seriously, did you, did, you know, did you notice those things? How many TV channels do you have? How many cooking shows do you have? I couldn't believe people. There's a dedicated channel for poker games, you know. What's the value of that? Isn't that worse than Kim Kardashian? And in restaurants. The more money you pay, the less food you get. <laughs> what are you consuming? You're consuming psychological products. So we talk personalization, psychological, and spiritual products. We have a new professional in the U.S. called life coaches. We don't know how to live without life coaches anymore. My father, who is a peasant, still lives in my village, 85. It's fine without life coach. He's fine. It's a, well, where do we have those things? Because we live in the age of abundance. In the age of abundance, the traditionally undervalued talents have become valuable. Dyslexia has always been, always been considered a problem because it interferes with reading. That's why we call it disability. But dyslexia recently has been discovered to be an advantage. Dyslexic people have a different neural wiring allows them to perceive patterns, 3D patterns, better than most of us. So they make the best astrophysicists. They make the best artists, 3D designers. But 100 years ago, there's not many jobs for those guys. You know, if you can see the skies very well, only one profession is called witches. You know, we don't get much stuff. And so today, they can become artists. They can become video game designers. They have become an asset. Don't fix them, bring them over here. So the square peg does not have to fit in the round hole. So 21st century, the second element of new middle class is traditional undervalued talents have become valuable in the hyper-specialization, hyper-specialized economy. Anyone who has any talent can develop with a great level of greatness, will become very valuable, stay out of parents' basement. That's basic. Now that's, if Lady Gaga is useful, anyone can be useful. The third element is most of our schools miss is the idea of entrepreneurism, entrepreneurial spirit. 
Traditionally, we've been talking about entrepreneurs as people who make money, engage in transactions. I call them business entrepreneurs. But actually today, we need social entrepreneurs who start up social enterprises to solve social problems. We also need intrapreneurs. Those are the jobs that in America, in other countries, they couldn't find people to fill. The short talent shortage. They were looking for intrapreneurs, not employees. They were looking for people at Apple Computer, for example, they said, if you want to be managed, you are not employable. But we kept producing, you know, people want to be managed, looking for jobs. Remember those kinds, that's employees. And we need policy entrepreneurs, that's another thing. Policy entrepreneurs means those are, we call them traditional bureaucrats or politicians. We need entrepreneur policy thinkers. You know, a few weeks ago, government was shut down in the federal government, and there's a lot of complaints. So America has too many different opinions. We got too many parties, tea party, coffee party, all kinds of parties. They have different views. And, and America is built to have different views. But we need it. Entrepreneur thinking policy makers or politicians who will negotiate with each other, who would compromise, not like Obama and Congress. They're like five-year-olds. Actually, that's an insult to five-year-olds. And, uh, uh, you know, do you notice that Congress, when the government shut down, Obama said, I'm not talking to you. You're not coming to my birthday party, you know, tonight. It's, we need them to negotiate. That's entrepreneur thinking. So what makes entrepreneurs different from employees? Entrepreneurs look at, look at problems as opportunities. Entrepreneurs come up with solutions. Entrepreneurs are persistent and resilient. Even their ideas do not work, they will try something different. Employees don't. Employees wait for orders, wait for solutions to implement. They're not intrinsically motivated, they're extrinsically motivated. We need entrepreneur spirit. That's something our schools are missing. Our schools teach employees. So that's why our students come to ask you, what do I have to do to get an A? Remember? So what do you really want to do? Do you mean 15 pages or 30 pages? Double-spaced? Do you remember those, those questions you, you feel all the time? I have a, I've been teaching for some 25, 30 years. That's the question that really annoys me. I said, however long you want to write. I don't even care. Why would I care? You, it's your learning. Think about that. It's very sad. We train our people to treat us as their boss and give them a grade because we caught with the employee mindset. It's not about their learning. They should become entrepreneur. So what makes entrepreneur qualities? Confidence, uh, social networking, friends, risk-taking, passion, and creativity. All of this, going back to the sausage-making model, the more effective you are as a sausage maker, the more likely you're going to decrease all of this. There's non-cognitive skills, hard to measure thinking attributes are never considered major, major part of our education. In our schools, only some schools take care of this, but most schools, when, only when you are in trouble academically, we begin to talk about your social emotional interest. Uh, but social emotional interests have become most valuable. Today, the most valuable skills are not academic skills, actually. Are your thinking, your creativity, entrepreneur, are you confident, all those things. And social abilities, the undervalued talents have risen to be very important. But the problem is that, as I was talking about, every education has side effects, as medicine. When you go buy Tylenol, it tells you, whoa, this might cause bleeding stomach while curing your runny nose. In education, have you ever, ever received that warning label from your school? Policymakers, 
or publications? I can tell you they do. Because education, as any human phenomena, when it cures, it poisons. When you get something, you lose something. When you get good test scores, you drop something. For example, I know, as an early reading researcher, I know some reading programs should have a warning label to tell you this. This may improve your children's test scores in reading, but may cause your children to hate reading forever. We well, you know that. So here's some big data for you to, to think about. I just showed you the diff different tests. All international tests now have a non-cognitive aspect. Americans' media only reports the cognitive aspect. So in 2003, TIMS, Trends in International Mathematics Study, that's the third one out of uh, 1964, that's the first international mathematics study. The T used to be third, but they like the brand, so they changed third into T. As usual, Americans, eighth graders, fourth graders, scored way below Asian students in math. On the same study, they asked another question about confidence. They said, I believe I usually do well in math. That's the question. Children said, strongly agree, uh, agrees a lot, agrees a little, disagrees a little, disagrees a lot. So you can imagine American students, they may be mathematically challenged or stupid, but they are very confident. <laughs> American students. Outconfident everybody. <laughs> so here's the puzzle we researchers deal with. Countries that produce high test scores in math have lower confidence and lower enjoyment. It's a global phenomenon. Do you value confidence? Do you value test scores? This is not only one time. It is actually happens all the time. 2011. We have uh, another team study repeated. All the East Asian countries look at test scores, math scores. They're over 100 points higher than Americans and, and Australians and the Brits. But if you look at uh, the confidence scores in the third column and the value uh, scores, they are much lower. So look at this data. Americans come to different conclusions. On the one hand, they said, OK, my god. Our students have high confidence but low test scores, which means they are too confident, too happy for their own good. Well, they're so happy, but they're so bad because uh, they just don't know how bad they are. Why don't they know how bad they are? Because we have lower standards. So Americans since 1990s, we've been bringing higher standards in math, standards-driven accountability measures, all of this, the, the time, trying to do that. We want to make sure our children know they're bad, and so they can, they're not worse than their friends, but they're worse than people uh, in countries they don't even know existed. Uh, that's the, the, now, we have uh, Asian countries took a different interpretation. After all these test scores, Japan worried about their children have no enthusiasm in science. Hong Kong students was number one in reading, but half of their children have no interest in reading. Singapore worried about students' lack of confidence. And uh, Finland, many people talk about Finland. Finland was number one on the PISA score in science, but Finnish students have no interest in science. If you have no interest, you're not going to become a scientist. And PISA scores has a strong negative correlation with entrepreneur activities in every country. Countries with higher math scores or reading scores on the PISA have lower entrepreneurship confidence, activities, and general behavior in entrepreneur thinking. 
So this is the side effects. What do we want? You want to become the best sausage maker or you want to expand? So for the future, to keep our children out of our basement, America cannot continue to rely on the accident we had. We have to move forward. America cannot benchmark the, its future to the past. When we try to learn from China, we're benchmarking to the past. America is worried about China surpassing it in the future. Do you know America? China surpassed America before there was an America. 1776. At that time, China was the largest economy for almost 2,000 years. Almost. Why did not the founding fathers benchmark to China at that time? I, I don't know. You know. If the founding fathers were interested in global benchmarking, they would benchmark to China or England at that time. They didn't. They invented a system. Today, education, we need a different future. We cannot copy something in the past. America has always been about inventing, making new things. So the past 20 years of education reform has lost our traditional virtues, wasted our time without inventing the future. Today, I encourage us to invent the future by moving to a new paradigm. A new paradigm that emphasizes on people's strength. Education ultimately is about enhancing our strength, not fix our deficit. It's not about imposing a national curriculum, but to support a personal curriculum. It is not about homogenizing individuals, it's about diversifying individuals. In the future, if your children can be curious, can ask questions, not answering questions, can create new ideas or new forms of things, can look at the globe as opportunities, not as competition, we will have a happy future for everybody. So what I define the future success of education is we need creative entrepreneurial students who are globally competent and who capitalize on their own individual interest, their own passion driven. And entrepreneurs are in essence people who care about other people's needs and drive the whole thing. So just to show you how we have been making mistakes about technology and about globalization, we have basically been looking at losses of the past as problems. So politics in this country is always about preserving the past. Though not let jobs go, Michigan is extremely. Michigan has been trying to make cars forever. They did not realize the Stone Age did not end because they ran out of stones. They still think we can make cars, you know. Michigan lost that battle. The only reason Michigan is still making cars because basically they want to make sure people can run away from it as fast as possible. That's the, 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 the only Now, what we need is to rethink about education. Globalize, if we want to compete with any country, if that's the goal, we cannot compete in test scores. Even if we did have produced the same test scores as China, as Korea, it would have cost us $10,000 to produce test scores. And that, that's, but in China, that may only cost $100. That's already lost. We have to educate in a different pathway. That's why America has to do personalized education, global competence, view the rising Asia, Brazil, Russia as new market. We need to create something to help them understand. What do you have to do to build a new education system? America has the resources, America has the, the cultural tradition, America has the will. 
we got to invent. Inventing the future means our schools have a personal education, personalized education experience, move to product-oriented learning, and take advantage of the globalized campus idea. And to make all of this happen, to keep your kids out of your basement, the only thing you need to do is just read my book. <laughs> Solves all the problem, okay? And if you don't want to read the book, uh, you can download the slides on my website and take care of this. So thank you very much. Keep the kids out of our basement. Make them independent. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If you have, is this mic on now? Let's, let's see if it's on now. Can, can you hear me? Great. Uh, if you have questions, you know, get a card from one of the ushers, uh, give the card back to the ushers, and uh, those will be brought over and uh, quickly sorted so that we can ask questions as, as uh, uh, quickly as possible. There's uh, a hand there. That's, yeah. now, let me, while we're waiting for some questions to uh, come, uh, let me point out that uh, the theme uh, for next year for the Thompson Forum uh, is creativity. Uh, so uh, what, what we have received this evening in this lecture is, is a wonderful uh, end to this uh, lecture series on uh, U.S. and them, uh, but it also uh, anticipates uh, where we will be going next year as we uh, look at uh, issues of creativity uh, throughout the world uh, in a variety of, of different, uh, different areas. Uh, while I'm also waiting for questions, let me point out that uh, after we finish the question and answer uh, period, uh, you will have the opportunity to secure uh, copies of Young Zhao's books and, and he will be available to uh, sign those down in the uh, lobby uh, on the main floor where, where you came in. Uh, while we're waiting for uh, questions to come from the audience, uh, let me uh, ask one that, that follows up with what you were speaking about. You, know, you were suggesting the need for a new uh, paradigm, uh, a new approach uh, that uh, takes advantage of, of American educational strengths, uh, not the weaknesses. Uh, can you give some examples of what that would look like uh, in uh, American schools today if uh, rather than uh, what presidents have recommended, you were in charge of, of shaping uh, the reform of American schools. Well, I think the, uh, if you start from national policy level, I would um, give back all the curriculum, pedagogical authority back to school districts, and I would give a lot more autonomy back to teachers. So that, that's one of the things you have to do is the... And then that's not enough, like I said, but then we would switch around, make our school follow the child. And I live in Oregon, we have a, as a state, we just, the governor was very proud, we just had our first kindergarten readiness assessment. Kindergarten readiness assessment. I think that's really silly. Kindergarten is not a job. You don't get ready for kindergarten. Just, so that's the problem. We need to follow the child. 
not follow some externally prescribed curriculum. Remember, that was a bet. You, do, you can't trust that bet. So I would do a lot more personalized uh, education. That's why, by the way, people, you know, there's a lot of a myth. See, American education is wasting money because we spend $10,000, a lot more money than other countries, but our test scores are lower. That's a, a very bad myth, you know, by a lot of book writers, like even Amanda Ripley talk about the Smartest Kids Club, recent books. This is the big mistake they make is that they only use test scores as a way to measure quality of education. Now, let me give you an example. Since we're in Nebraska, you, know, you took me to a restaurant and said, uh, a food without beer, that's a big mistake. And so I'm going to use uh, drinking as an example. Uh, you know, you, you, once some of you went to college and um, you, you drank $3 a bottle of wine. You know, now you drink $30 a bottle of wine. That's 10 times more. But if you only measure how fast you get drunk, it's probably about the same. There's no difference. It's the other things. The other thing is the personalization piece, the creativity piece we can cultivate in our students. Does declining creativity also have a negative effect on students' work ethics? Uh, tremendously, actually, because the, I was putting up this uh, uh, special issue 2010 of Newsweek, who documented the uh, decline of creativity among your, our youth since the 1990s, 1990s coincided with the code standards-based movement, accountability movement, and also parents become more serious. I don't know, the, the uh, baby boomers on their, their, their children have become very serious. We prescribed a lot of our children's activities. We were reading with them, watching TV with them. Our children were practically deprived opportunities to free play, to explore. That's them. So the more you manage them, which China is very good at managing people, you cannot, you cannot do that. The other issue that with about uh, uh, work ethics is engagement. Unless children, uh, unless we are driven by our own pursuit, unless we're intrinsically motivated, we're not very engaged. If you're doing someone else's tasks, as I, I just wrote in my, my new book, it's talking about in China, a lot of learning is about fulfilling the obligations of somebody else to make sure they are a good student. So I call this for the emperor. You know, most people are not engaged. Uh, Gallup poll showed uh, Chinese uh, uh, workers, uh, about 2% of them are engaged in the job, which is very serious concern. In the US, I got 30%. We're not necessarily much better, but we're actually much better than that. So uh, work ethics has to do with, are you intrinsically motivated? Do you choose to do this? Or are you forced to do this? How do you feel about teachers in the United States? Are they on the same path that education in general is headed? Are they making the difference? It's, well, I think they, uh, I've been to a lot of classrooms, talked to a lot of teachers. I, I think most of our teachers, as all of us, really, were still following that authoritarian sausage-making paradigm. But American teachers somehow have not been as good at following those things. They're not as good sausage makers as other countries because they, they, they treat children at least to some degree as human beings. So they think that teach children, not teaching the subjects. Let me give you an example of this. And uh, Many people criticize American teachers for this. So a first grade teacher, you have a student, let's say Mary or John comes to class and the teacher asks Mary or John, what's one plus one? If Mary says three, most American teachers, as I observed, will say, Mary, that's a very interesting answer. Can you say more about that? 
Now, that's been challenged by people who say that's poor math teaching. That's poor. But that cultivates the possibility for the child to feel confident to explain what it means, to drive different views. But it's very inefficient as trying to instill a mathematical concept. So American teachers have been doing that. However, over the last 20 years, American teachers have been forced to narrow their teaching to become a better, better machine to drive the content. Because they have to cover so much content by this prescribed by the state, they are now held accountable with the student test scores. You know, teachers, when they are rewarded or punished based on test scores, we see massive cheating, we see teachers narrowing the curriculum, and we're punishing a lot of our teachers for that reason. And so that's where I think I see the, the sadness of forcing our teachers to do the same thing as other countries. And uh, by the way, uh, I don't know if Nebraska is doing this. Uh, rewarding teachers or punishing teachers uh, based on their students' test scores is actually violating the child labor law. You know, you are basically determining that adults' income based on children's performance. You know, I think we should uh, sue some if they're doing this then. Tennessee might be doing this, by the way. How do you assess present American universities, and are they also in need of paradigm shifts in education? American universities, again, are some of the best accidents or by design. You know, American universities, we have not only the largest number, we have the largest diversity across the globe. We have uh, very different types of universities, and they're happy to be themselves. And then more importantly, we are among the very few systems that actually relied on multiple ways of admitting students. So we're happy about diversity. We're happy to put up different things. So we have a diverse campus. Diversity is one of the most important things. But how, uh, then, that's still not sufficient. We still had majors, trainings, and now many universities are moving towards the paradigm shift, along more personalized definition of education. Some universities allow students to put together their own major, for example. Some allow them to, uh, to, to go to take a year off to go to other places. So it's shifting a lot, but it's still not enough. And the federal government, the policy is putting America, again, backwards. We are trying to require, I mean, like some states too, Making university, we want to hold universities accountable now. We want universities to teach the same thing. Faculty are held accountable for students' work, and that's actually very dangerous. Thank you. Are private schools held to the same standards as public education? What are your ideas on private schooling? Well, I am a person who supports diversity. So I think private schools have its, space, have its place. And I actually don't believe private schools should be subject to the same standards as others. I just think, uh, coming from a country in China where everything is managed by one party, by one authority, I have a natural aversion to anybody mm. who as authority wants to use public dollars to manage other people's business. So that, that's, that's, I have a, that's a very strong bias. But even public schools, I think should have a lot of more self-determination. Government, the state, the federal government should guarantee equal opportunity, but not equal content. So that we should give the equal education opportunity to all children, but equal opportunity does not mean learning the same thing at the same time for all children. 
So that's very different. Funding should be equalized, but not content. If content is the same, determined by a small body of people using tax dollars, it's no different than indoctrination by one party. How has U.S. Uh, immigrant experience or history contributed to our creativity? Uh, what would be the effect in, Ameri in American creativity? What would the effect in American creativity be of restricting immigration? The uh, Americas has, by accident, again, by opening up to immigration, that brings a lot of lot of different ideas. So it actually forces different things, immigration. As Richard Florida has done a lot of research on this. Uh, immigration brings, number one, of course, is uh, different perspectives. Number two, brings huge pressure on the, for, to the existing people. And because they take a lower level jobs, it forces people to be creative, to do something different. And number three, cross-fertilization allows more us change the culture to force us to become more tolerant of each other. So that the tolerance is highly correlated with creativity. Richard Florida, the economist who studies this, then tolerance actually is one of the sub-index of the creativity index. How tolerant we are in schools, in society, in the city, directly correlates with our creativity capacity. So our university has to do that. And immigration, I think, drives that. So by, by the way, also, we, another issue we face, which I didn't talk about, globalization enables global movement of talents. So if the US began to tighten immigration policy, I mean legal immigration policy, we will likely be driving away a lot of talents. They'll be moving to other places. Because the, uh, Richard Florida also wrote a book called The Flight of the Creative Class. The creative class are extremely mobile. We're gonna move to many different places. And so we have to find a way to attract and retain that movable talents globally. What does your vision for education look like in an individual classroom setting? Do you have any advice for teachers today? Oh yeah, I, I have a lot. Read the book, please. And, uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, it's actually very simple. Is that I would start individualized learning. You would ask students, say, um, start with their passion, start with their interest. Don't worry about content. Start with a project, like uh, your third grader can say, hey, I am very interested in writing a story, a multimedia ibook for children in China about life in Nebraska. That might be a very cool book. Then you will be dealing with whatever you will learn from that. That child will not be able to write a good book to be read by Chinese unless he or she is really good at language, manipulation, drawing, graphing, all those things. So you always start with something, ask the child, what do they want to do? do you, are they interested in something, creating something? Today, we have so much technology. Uh, I'm actually running a big project, for example, called a Global Language and Culture Institute. We have students, elementary school students, middle school students from many different countries working together to create language and culture lessons, courses, materials for each other. For example, we have a school in Ireland, Dublin. They're creating a course to teach the Gaelic culture, and students in Beijing are learning from them. Mm. And that's something they can do. Your student can do the same thing. When we admire uh, you know, big websites like Sao Kang's, the Kang Academy teach math, your children can run a Kang Academy, maybe better teaching math than Sao Kang. I mean, just, we need to liberate our children in thinking they can do something 
And university have to change that admission criteria for that too. They have to look at what children can do, not what they can test as. By the way, a lot of companies are doing the same thing, Google and others. So I would encourage as teachers, go back, ask your students, again, look at what they, do not look at what they cannot do. You may have an immigrant child who does not speak the English yet, but that person is good at something. By the way, everybody is good at something. By the same token, don't be too happy. You must be bad at something too. So it's a, <laughs> it's a, that's what, you cannot be good at everything and you cannot be bad at everything. You have to look hard. But traditional society, when we prescribe those sausage making, we're basically defining what's included in the curriculum is good, what's not is not valuable. Today, luckily, after so many millennium of work, we have arrived at the time that almost every talent is valuable. So as teachers, start with what the child can do. When child feels good about what they do, they're much more likely to engage in school. People always ask me, how did you get out of the village? I said, well, simply speaking, I was a horrible farmer. <laughs> so I was simply running away from being a peasant. I've always told people I might be a successful professor, but I am a failed peasant. That's a, and so the school made me feel good. So I was running away from what I was not able to do. So that's how I would start. What is the value of standardized testing? Does it have value? Uh, should we standardize testing for entrepreneurial skills? What would the benefit be? Well, standardized testing, they, it depends. How, how do you say it? Like, um, as a reference, actually, it's valuable. If you want to do like, like something like that, for example, but never as a gateway, never use for accountability. For example, if you want to become a musician, a violinist, there is standards for you to become a good violinist. There's some measurement in, of, of those things, but it's as a reference. It's like the like same thing. So standard test, for you, you take your children, for example, to a hospital or to a, a pediatrician. They have standard to measure, is your child like 95 percentile in height? Remember those things? And in, in weight? And, but if that person is using that as accountability measures to say that every child in this country shall be 1.5, let's say 3.7 feet by age three. If not, we're going to take over. <laughs> that, then that's a problem, right? You know, so as a parent, what are you going to do? You say, I fed this kid broccoli and, and everything, and, but he's still like 3.5. Well, what am I going to do? You buy stretchers at night. That's, that's the... <laughs> So the issue is that how you use it. They're good as reference, but not good as gatekeepers or as a way to distribute uh, resource punitive things like that. I'll read two questions which are similar questions and we'll uh, end with, with these. Uh, personalizing education seems to be a primary concern for students, but how do you create public a public education system that can adequately meet the needs of millions of students while still making it personal-based learning? Uh, and then a related question, after students get individual education, how do they find a job to allow them to move out of the basement? Thank you, that's a beautiful question. Well, first of all, as uh, in the 21st century today, actually in the, in, in, economy, we've already made that shift. Before, companies said, they, okay, I'm making this, I'm sending this to you. Today, it's always about personalized. It's, I want this, you make it for me. Personalized publishing, employee-owned companies, you look at Amazon, how many artists, personalization. 
Education is very much like that. I think we have difficulty by saying we are providing personalization. No, you want students to drive that. You know, education is made by students. So I want our schools to focus on allowing children to create their own pathways. You create the opportunities. So what if we view schools as a museum? Teachers as curators of learning opportunities. So the children can, you know, they can start from anywhere in the museum. You don't force them into pathway. So they create the whole thing. And today with technology, with those language learning opportunities, as I said, created, with MOOCs, the open courses, with children collaborating, it's very possible for us to create personalized education. If a child, for example, is interested in fashion design, there's no reason the child is not going to be able to put together a very nice fashion design course through YouTube, through contact from New York, through contact from London. We can do that. So we have to imagine our schools as a globalized campus that we can borrow from other places. The second thing is that we are not preparing people to find jobs. They have to create jobs. And the jobs, you know, we call self-employment, you look at this thing, has risen dramatic in the, in the US. We have a lot of what we call free agent nation. People are not finding employees, they're creating their own enterprises, companies. So we need to create ourselves. It's not about vertical movement anymore, it's horizontal movement. This is a major economical shift we're going to move on. And so that's, they will be out of your basement. Actually, they may be operating in your basement. You know, they don't have to be out. It's a, uh, that was just a metaphor for them to be independent. That, that's all. And uh, so don't kick them out. They may be doing something cool in your basement. That's, uh, the, the key is that do not expect government or big companies to create jobs just because they love you. We have to, as citizens, to take the responsibility to create a better environment for others. And actually for Americans, our students also have the social obligation to create opportunities for the much less fortunate who do not have access to the kind of education we have. We are wasting our resources, wasting our luxury, trying to raise test scores not capitalize on our culture strength, not capitalize on our museums, our musical instruments, our sports facilities to diversify our students to become creators. We try to make them test takers. And actually, it's a sad thing that's doing a disservice to the entire world. Remember that the book signing is in the lobby, uh, and we'll look forward to seeing you uh, next year for the, the new series on creativity. Uh, let us uh, thank uh, Young Zhao once more. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.